I bombarded you with memes. So if you get a chance to open them, kind of funny. <laughs> Let me make sure it's recording. It looks like it is. Let me see what you're doing. Good test. I just sent you Chuck Norris. I'm take out my gum, so I'm not quite so snappy. I'm doing well. How are you today? <laughs> okay, that's good. Oh, my gum was making me snappy. Yeah, I was good with the well, gum. Well, I'm feeling stabby today, so just so you know. Are you? <laughs> yes. Okay. All righty. I'm glad we're 1,800 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wouldn't stab you. Since you're feeling stabby. I'm feeling stabby. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. I guess we're here today to talk about the children's blizzard or the school children's blizzard or the blizzard of 1888, the first blizzard of 1888, because there was one in March as well as one in February. January. February. February? January. January. Okay. January 12th. There's one in your month and one in my month. (laughs) There you go. And mine hit the East Coast. And we'll do that another time. Yeah. But this one. The blizzard started um, on January 12th, 1888, where an Arctic cold wave slipped underneath a warmer high pressure system and produced a massive blizzard with fine ice snow. Had lightning, some St. Elmo's fire, and winds exceeding 80 miles per hour. Some places they got as much as 50 inches of snow. So I'm going to let you share a little bit about the weather conditions that produced this crazy Arctic cold wave. Okay. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that St. Elmo's fire was actually reported by one of the Signal Corps recorders that recorded information about the weather. He said that just before the storm, his telegraph machine was sparking by itself. And part of the line was sparking as well. And he said it was a lot of static electricity in the air. And that happens when you have, when you have very dry air. And also when the wind blows hard because it ionizes the air. And that's why people feel uncomfortable before a, a change in the weather because the wind is making their skin crawl, basically. So the static electricity is a lot like what happens when you, you rub your feet on the carpet and go over and touch your brother or sister and give them a shock that's the static electricity yeah that's like that <laughs> it's like when you rub a cat against your head and your hair stands out and the cat bites right. you <laughs> right. there's always air being dragged along Sorry. by the surface of the I earth these balloons myself but you know <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about weather because global weather is fluid dynamics in the atmosphere which sounds very complicated, but it's not real complicated. As the Earth rotates, the air moves with it, but it kind of lags behind it a little bit. And the Earth, because it's tilted, and that's why we have seasons, receives different amounts of solar energy at different places. Like during our winter, the top of the Earth is tilted away from the sun, so it gets less sun, so it gets colder, and the southern hemisphere gets warmer. And as you go throughout the year, of course, that changes to where we have summer and my friends in Australia have winter. That in, in, inequity in heating 
causes the rise and fall of large masses of air. Along the northern part of the United States and all the way around the world at that point is the polar jet stream. There's also a subtropical jet stream that, that goes around near the equator, but the one that caused the storm was, was attached to the polar jet stream. Which shifts up and down. Yeah, it moves. It's like pressure. a river, and, and sometimes it'll move, and the things that move it are high and low pressure systems. And if you have a really, this one had a very high pressure system that caused a kink in the jet stream, and so it all built up and then it all flowed out at once. So when you're looking at a weather map and you're looking at a high-pressure system, high-pressure system is air pushing down. And you read that, well, they used to, now they use a different thing, a barometer, but they used to use a barometer that was made out of liquid mercury. And so when the air pressure would get higher, the liquid in the tube would shoot up because the air was pressing down on the other end. And so that, that's why they say the barometer is 2992. Now, 29.92 inches of mercury is standard, the standard barometric pressure at sea level. And that's what we use as a baseline when we're talking about high and low pressure. When an airplane takes off it ne and goes somewhere else, it needs to get the barometric pressure at the place where it's landing so that his altimeter will show the correct altitude. Because if you don't reset it, you end up coming in way too low or way too high. And so uh, there's that much of a difference from place to place where they actually have to reset their altimeters to the local barometric pressure. And when you look at a weather map, you may see isobars and wind. Now, isobars are the lines that they draw through from one barometric pressure to the matching barometric pressure to the matching barometric pressure in a circle around an area. I like isobars, especially the ones with the vanilla ice cream and the chocolate on the outside of it. Oh, I know. Yeah, they're kind of crunchy and then they're smooth <laughs> and creamy. <laughs> isobars. No, no, no. Oh, uh, isobars. I-S-O-B-A-R-S. Okay, sorry. I got that one confused. <laughs> so what you see is squiggly circles on a map. It's it's like a topographical map. It shows you that shows you how high something is. Uh, the isobars show you how how high or low the pressure is. And when you look at a map that has isobars on it, if they're very close, those pressures are they go from like 26 to 25 to 26 to 27 to 28 to 29. And if it's over a short distance, that means there's going to be high winds in that area, because the atmosphere is always trying to level itself out by going from a high-pressure system to a low-pressure system. A low-pressure system, the air rises, and it takes the humidity with it, so low-pressure systems are very often associated with precipitation, rain or snow or whatever. In the applied, in the applied gas laws in, in air movement, you're always going to go from an area of high pressure to low pressure. It takes the path of least resistance. So it'll move from high to low pressure always. The extreme cold during the polar winter is caused by the lack of solar energy reaching the Arctic. On the winter solstice in um, 2016, I think it was, that's what, December 21st or 22nd? 21st, I believe, yeah. They said that Anchorage yeah. would only have five and a half hours of sun that day. And Fairbanks, farther north, would only have three and three quarters. And north of the Arctic Circle in Barrow, Alaska, they didn't see the sun at all. 
So you could see why the air there was getting colder and colder and colder because it was losing its heat and getting no sunlight to replace that. Now, when a cold air mass starts to move, and in the United States, we have an interesting situation where we have, we have two sets of mountain ranges on the west side, the Rockies and the Sierras. But air gets funneled down through Montana, mostly these cold pressure, cold weather systems come down through Montana, and they push out into the Great Plains, and that is literally a downhill slope because the altitude in Montana is, is much higher than the altitude in New Orleans. So when these, what we call um, blue northers here in Texas, I know in the east they call them Yankee Clippers, but the blue northers come, they come very fast, and the, and the air, the cold air, actually turns into like a wedge underneath the hot air, and it, it's a long triangle that pushes that warm air up. Warm air goes up with its humidity, and then it starts to precipitate out of the moist warm air through the cold air, and it causes snow. Mm-hmm. Blizzard conditions in this case, because the, wind, the differential was so great, the wind speeds were so fast that it actually created blizzard conditions. Right. And, and that arrow point of cold air just shot down under that warm air. And, just, and within, in a four-day period, it went from Canada down to Galveston and Brownsville, Texas. So it moved very fast. And the winds were very high. So it's like a tsunami of cold air, right? Kind of like a tsunami, tsunami except tsunamis air, are like the- rounded when they come towards you. But this is more like mm-hmm. it's just shooting out underneath, like out of a hose. The precipitation that fell with this storm, it wasn't actually snow. It was little pieces of super cold moisture that had collected around things like pollen or little pieces of spider web or little pieces of dirt that were th- sucked up into the air. And what it was was little hard crystals and tiny little tubes that if they went into your eyes, for example, they would freeze your eyes shut. So it wasn't just snow. It was actually things that were could cut you. They were like grains of sand blowing through the air, but like little razor grains of sand. Yeah, and if you got them in your eyes or in yeah. your nose, it would freeze, and you, you couldn't open your eyes to see, and it was difficult to breathe. So that's what these people were hit with. After In two days, two days after the blizzard in the north that we're going to talk about, it reached Texas and Oklahoma at 3 a.m. in Fort Elliott, which is out near Mobiti, northeastern Texas Panhandle. Uh, it was recorded as 7 below zero, which is a record. The following year, Amarillo had a record low of 16 below by February. By 6 p.m. in Abilene, the temperature was minus 2, and early the next morning it was minus 7. And that's freaking cold for Abilene. On the 15th, Galveston at 4 a.m. had light rain that turned into blinding snow and a blizzard. Corpus Christi had temperatures from 60 at 2 a.m. to 16 during the day. On the 16th, freezing rain hit Rio Grande City, which is south Texas, and the temperatures reported in Brownsville dropped dropped to 21 degrees. Now, Brownsville is the southernmost part of Texas that's like Mexico, only north of the border. And it's also reported that sections of the Red River in Texas froze 12 inches overnight. In this storm, they actually found Texas cattle in Georgia. 
Right. So it was a big right. blow. Well, the thing is, a lot of the cattle suffocated because they were their their nostrils and, and tongues were frozen and they weren't able to breathe and they suffocated on the spot and just kind of flash froze in the process. And they tried... I read of an account where they tried to resuscitate him or to warm him up, and they said it was a horrible thing that they would would you know live for just a very short time and then they would die, presumably from cardiac arrest because of the the temperature differential. Well, and some people actually tied a rope from the house to the barn. There was there was quite a few people that did that, and that's the only reason they got back to their house. And back then, the houses that they had, most right. of them were sod houses where you dig out of the ground um, like six or seven feet, and then you use the sod to pile up along the sides and to pile on the roof. And so those sod houses were actually warmer than the frame houses that they built later. And some of the people went and stayed in their old sod house and left their other house empty during this storm because it was easier to keep warm with less fuel. Right. And that's if the roof didn't blow off because there were several incidences where the roofs blew off places and people had to go find other places to shelter because there was no roof on the building. A couple of schoolhouses I read about that went through that. Yeah, that's right. Well, the side roofs roofs wouldn't blow off, but the other roofs, had. yes, you're right, they did blow off. There's actually a report in the Minneapolis Tribune that uh, in Moorhead, which is just across the border from North Dakota. In Minnesota, it was 47 degrees below zero, and the wind was 60 miles an hour, which makes it 101 degree negative wind chill, minus 101 degree. And that's the kind of weather that freezes flesh will kill you very fast. The wind was blowing so hard it knocked down the telegraph wires, and it knocked down and it made it impossible for the trains to go through because of the drifts. Well, the thing is, it, it, it talks about the fact that the temperature dropped 18 degrees in the first three minutes of this storm reaching the area. And these people had all been out. Um, it was an unseasonably warm day. They'd had a little bit of a January thaw. And everyone was confident and went out and sent their children to school. who Normally they wouldn't have because of the blizzard conditions or the, the cold conditions. But they sent their kids off to school, many of them not dressed appropriately for the, the weather change that was coming. There was a, even a, a lady I know who had a premonition. She didn't want her children to go to school. She felt like there was something that scared her and she didn't want them to go. When her husband said, oh, they can go. Well, the older son went and the younger son stayed home and the older son never made it back home again. He was, he was killed in the blizzard uh, by freezing to death. So, you know, there, it, it happened so quickly. But I think, as you said, when there's that kind of a, a storm or those kind of temperature and p- pressure changes, people can feel it. It is something that your body, because we're made up of so much water, your body can detect those things. Um, the temperature dropped as much as 100 degrees in a 24-hour period surrounding that storm. I used to run a summer mm-hmm. camp here, and I could tell when the weather was going to change because I'd have more kids in my office in trouble. The wind would ionize the air. And it would make them uncomfortable. It make their spit, it, you know, it's one of those like, don't touch me. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but it's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, your, right. your, your skin is sensitive and you're irritable and these kids would get in trouble and they'd bring them to my office and I'd just let them sit there and calm down. But I could always tell when the weather was going to change because the next day 
after I had a bunch of children in my office, it would be raining or thunderstorms or whatever. So yeah, there's a the ionization in the air you don't notice, but it does affect you. And who knows if that woman was responding to that or having a premonition. But the thing is, I think the greater the the humidity level, the less detectable it is. The lower the humidity level, the drier it is. I think it is much more detectable in a person's, you know, ability to 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 notice things changing. Um, But they all went out confident, enjoying this beautiful sunny day. People let their cows out who hadn't been out in a long time. So that they could for a little bit, and um, unfortunately, they were caught unawares because the signal core um, had some problems with their warning system. It's estimated that there was seven hundred million dollars in damage if you correlated it to today's monetary values. Um, so that was loss of cattle, loss of house life, those kinds of things, and loss of business because. They couldn't run the railroad, so they lost money there. They had to make repairs. Yeah, it was very expensive. It was estimated that between 300 and 500 deaths occurred Mm -hmm. directly related to the storm or subsequent to the storm based on like people with pneumonia or who had frostbite and succumbed to the gangrene from amputations and things like that because many people lost limbs because of the hypothermia and the, the frostbite injury. Okay. Yeah, it's frostbite was a was a big killer and crippler during this storm. And the people were caught unawares because like you said it was it was relatively warm in the morning. It actually started to warm up about 2 o'clock in the morning. It was still it was above freezing. It still wasn't really warm, but it was it, it, in some of the places it was like in the 40s or upper 30s. And so the kids didn't take all of their mittens and gloves and everything that they normally would take on a cold winter day. And the thing that, that really is, is telling about it too, is that there were, they, there were so many decisions that had to be made regarding the children. Do we keep them in the schoolhouse and shelter them there? Or do we take the chance of letting them go home? And unfortunately there were many situations where they did allow the children to go and many were lost. But then there also were some teachers who sheltered in place and the children did okay. There was one teacher named Minnie Freeman. She was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse that had lost its roof and they weren't able to stay there because of the storm. And she saved 13 of her students, bringing them to safety um, in a, to, to a local house in Ord, Nebraska. She was subject to many folk legends and was the subject of a ballad even about her rescue efforts. She was given 80 proposals after her heroin heroism was made public, her heroin was made her heroism was made public. <laughs> and Minnie was quoted as saying that she was no one special, but she was only doing her job and protecting the children. And there was a, a group of she showed up at this woman's house with thirteen children. Actually, they some reports say it could be as many as sixteen. They weren't sure, but she tied them all together with twine so they wouldn't get lost, which was smart. And then took them to this. This, these well, people's house. Kind, well, and that's kind of speculative because I've seen different reports that the students that said, no, she didn't. We just held hands. And other people said that she tied them together. So, I, you know, it, that may have been part of the folk legend. 
Anyways, they did survive, 13 of them. Yep, they did. And she became, yeah. she was singled out as a heroine. Her, her story hit the newspapers, and they ran with it. And she really did feel like all she did was get the kids out of this one, one place and get them to another. One of the biggest problems that, was, that she reported was that with these 13 extra mouths to feed, it, it took her and the woman who, owned the ha- who lived in the house quite a while to put together enough food to give them dinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they wrote songs about her. Live. She was very brave considering she was, what, 19 years old? 19 years old, yep. Yep, 19. They said a survivor's club was formed, um, and many people over the next several years were seen um, out in public with amputations and prosthetic limbs, and they could be tracked to the blizzard where they had lost them because of frostbite. Um, so it's something that lingered on, and it, there were many people in that area of the country who didn't have a story about someone that they knew or themselves experiencing the blizzard because it was such a widespread catastrophe, and um, it, it became part of that local history. The thing is, a lot of the people who moved into that area were people from um, up in the Netherlands and in that part of the world, and they didn't really fully understand the barren nature of the plains when they moved to the plains and how the weather was so unpredictable and that they would get these horrible storms. And it took several years of experience to get to the place where they understood um, I mean, they would have prairie fires, then they would have these horrible storms and people would lose, you know, acres and they'd lose animals and family members. And um, it, it was just a really sparse and Spartan life that they had to live up there. So they were a hardy bunch of people that they were able to continue to live there. And they were offered, mm-hmm. they were offered land for the filing fee. They weren't, they didn't have to pay for the land they just had to farm it for five years. So they paid $18, took all their stuff out there, and then started farming, and which was kind of difficult because the, that was thick prairie grass that had been there for thousands of years, and getting through that was difficult. But yeah. they did finally do it, and a lot of them were successful. All right, so Etta Shattuck was a teacher in Emmett, Nebraska. She was actually... She was sending money back to her family because her father went from one place to another and he was never successful at farming and they were always broke and moved around a lot. And so she would send money to her family and she was the only support for her family. And that's why she became, when she became a teacher. Yeah, her father was actually in the Civil War and had been wounded in the Civil War, and that was one of the reasons why he was incapable of really providing for their family the way that he needed to. She sent her students home early, or canceled school. They're not sure which. She may have just canceled school. She was caught in the blizzard while she was trying to get documents from her directors, which was a warrant or a paycheck. She wandered until she found a haystack and took shelter under it. At daylight, she was too weak to break her way through the ice that had accumulated on the haystack. She was there from Thursday night until Sunday when a farmer found her while he was looking for hay for his stock. She had to have both of her legs amputated below the knee, which they say was a successful operation, but she died on February 6th. She had an infection set in, and that's what killed her. She got septic after the fact. But she was one of the people who was involved in the heroin fund where they they set up a fund 
um, one for many, um, and then one for, she was involved in it. And then there was another girl, Lena Wobeck, who um, they also set up a trust fund for her. So people who had been injured and they had private donations to help with their medical care and um, for their upkeep over the years, I guess. Yeah, and after she died, Edda's, I believe it, Edda's family was receiving some of those funds because she was their sole support. Right. So then there's right. another one, another teacher story, Lois May Rice. She taught near Plainview, Nebraska. She had nine students, six of whom went home at noon. The remaining three stayed, but without enough fuel to keep their schoolhouse warm overnight, she decided she'd take them to the home of Pete Hansen. It was about 200 yards north of the schoolhouse. In that short distance, she got lost, put, took the kids, and got under a hay pile. And before daybreak, all three children perished. They were found curled up against their teacher's body. She lost both her feet above the ankles, and one hand was permanently disabled. Now, she stayed until she learned to walk on her prosthesis, then she went and she married someone in Iowa, and eventually she moved to California where she wouldn't have to worry about blizzards anymore. That was smart. <laughs> you would think after going through something like that that people would just, but a lot of people stayed. Grace Kent was 17. She was a teacher in the Dakota Territory. Back then, Dakotas weren't separated and they weren't states, so it was just North and South Dakota were the Dakota Territory. And she was a local to the Plains. She had recognized the signs of the impending storm. So she wrapped up the younger children in whatever she could find, some, you know, towels, rags, whatever, anything to keep them warm. And she sent the older children home and delivered the younger children to safety with their neighbors. Then she tried to reach her father's home, which was the when she started making bad decisions, she became lost, and she stumbled and fell. Her feet were too badly frozen, so she crawled until she found a sheep shed where she stayed and was found by a search party. Her feet had to be amputated. But she, being in there with those animals, they, they create a lot of heat when they're all together, and if you've got a roof, then you can survive because they're heating you up. And there's another, there's another situation about that well, later with the animals. There was a daylight rescue party that heard... Um, a dog barking, a Newfoundland barking, and they found in a snowdrift that Johnny um, Johnny Chambers, I believe, was his name. He was uh, he was deep in the snowdrift and buried in the opening, um, and the dog was standing guard. But Chambers passed away, but the dog was still standing there guarding the opening of the of the snow tunnel that he had created to move into. And there were so many stories. The Westphalen girls, that happened in, um, yeah. And then there was the Westphalen girls, Ida and Matilda Westphalen. Their teacher had um, had sent them off to go home, and the girls got lost in the storm. And they were, as victims of hypothermia, they died in the fetal position usually, but these two girls died lying face down. And they dropped while fighting to walk into the wind, and once they fell, they must have just lost consciousness and passed away quickly. But the snow blew all night over their bodies. Well, see, and different reports about the, uh, there's different reports about the same people where the details are really pretty widely different. The Westphalen sisters that I, 
the information I found was they were 13 and 17 years old. And they actually asked the teacher to let them go because they were afraid their mother would worry. And so the teacher didn't really want to let them go, but, they, but then she finally gave in and let them, let them leave. And when they found them, not only were they face down in the snow, but the little girl, the seven-year-old, had her older sister's coat wrapped around her. So her older sister had put her coat around the little sister to try and keep her warm and save her. Mm-hmm. Their teacher was Nellie Forsyth. Really? The relatives? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she told, I don't know. It says the teacher, Nellie Forsythe, told the children to go home and Ida and Matilda left together. So they headed out and they got going in the wrong direction because of the wind. It blew them off course. And then uh, in the haystack where Etta Shattuck had taken refuge, it became her prison because she couldn't get back out. And you spoke about that, how she got dug out by a farmer later in the week. Amazing that she actually survived. You want to do Seymour Dopp? Yeah, Seymour Dopp was a teacher in Ponte City, Nebraska. He had 17 students in his school, and um, he had to make the decision about whether he was going to shelter them in place or if he was going to try to let them go home, and he opted to shelter them in place. He did have adequate fuel, and the, the building stayed intact. The wind didn't blow it down or anything. And so he was able to shelter them. They shared the food that the children had, lunches, and what was left of their lunches and things like that. And by dawn the next day, the parents came to claim their children, and everyone survived. Um, but the, the daughter of Seymour Dapp, I read a, an account of her, how she said that her, her father was such a brave man. She and her mother were at home when the blizzard hit and they didn't know if he was going to come home or not. So they kept watch for him, but he never did come home and they didn't know what his fate was until that next day. But he had stayed in heroically took care of the children and executed his duties. Um, there were two unnamed men who rescued children that were trapped in a schoolhouse. He tied a rope to the schoolhouse and to the house next door and then shuttled the children across the rope to the to the house next door so that they could be in somewhere where they were warm and, and kept safe. There were so many stories. There was a girl named Lena Wobeck who had been adopted, um, and she was a big German girl, and she really was kind of on the outside. But her, her parents had given her a lunch pail and a writing pad and told her not to lose them. So Lena was at the school and the teacher begged her to please stay and not leave. And she was determined that she was going to go home. And so she went out on the the track and she got lost in the snow. And at one point she said, well, if I can't get home, I will turn around and go back. Well, she got back to within just a few hundred feet of the schoolhouse and collapsed in the cold. And um, she was buried under the snow. And the next morning, her parents found her still alive, although very badly frostbitten. She ended up losing a foot um, to the frostbite, holding her writing pad and her lunch pail, and she never let go of them. But uh, she had started off with another little another boy who was going to lead her, and she was couldn't speak very much English, and so she didn't understand his direction, and so she just got angry, and she left off on her own, and he went home, and he got home safely, but she never made it home that night, mm-hmm. and so but she did have to have her foot amputated. Later on, her adoptive parents, um, there was a man who they had collected funds for the heroin or the you know the heroin 
fund or the the fund for people who had been injured in the in the blizzard, he had collected money and invested it on her behalf. And when she turned 25, the money was turned over to her, and she had quite a substantial amount of money to live. He paid all of her medical medical expenses, gave her housing, and all of those things. And eventually, she did marry. But um, it doesn't. There's no more details about her marriage or whether she had children or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the adoptive parents worked very hard to try to take care of her, but they just couldn't afford it. And so some benefactor took that responsibility and started to put funds away for her. Well, that's good. Charles Elbert had to crawl 120 yards to his home, and he was unable to see it because of the freezing snow dust and the winds that hindered his sight. And he literally crawled in what he thought was the right direction and actually made it home. So that was kind of a miracle. And, you know, many children, many, many children were lost in this blizzard. There was a family that lost three of their sons when they, uh, a group of five boys took off and two of them went in one direction and the others got confused and went a different direction. And they were found over three quarters of a mile away from the school in a field, all huddled together. One of the boys with his hand up in the air with a shirt or some type of a scarf in his hand. And they just found them frozen together in a huddle. And when the parents went to claim the bodies, they brought the father brought them home, brought them in and put them in front of the stove. And the wife went hysterical and just was laughing. And the the siblings said they could remember their mother laughing when their brothers were brought in. But they couldn't bury them in a coffin because their bodies were so contorted and rigor mortis had had set in and they were frozen in that position. Yeah. They were frozen together and they couldn't get them apart. That's why he brought them home and put them in the... I think in the kitchen, put them in front of the heat anyways. Mm-hmm. And uh, right. yeah, if you can imagine trying to, someone bringing in three of your children frozen together to thaw them out, I think hysterical laughter mm-hmm. is one of the better reactions you could have. Right, right. It's just, you know, it's such a sad situation because that family, one of the sons had been born coming across the Atlantic, uh, emigrating to the country. And he had been a survivor. They had lost one child um, right after they got to the United States. But this child had survived, survived the trek out to the West, living on the prairie, had survived to be a young teen, I believe. And that's when he perished in the blizzard. So that was kind of a tragic story and situation. Others just kind of wandered in the storm. They were pushed along. You know, they, they couldn't recognize their faces were were horribly injured because of the ice and they would try to wipe the ice away from their eyes so they could see and it would tear their skin and just you know disfigured and um, badly wounded from the the storms just a tragic situation they didn't have any of the modern conveniences that we have like radar and satellite imagery and predictions you know they had what was called the signal core Let's just take a minute and listen to our one and only wonderful sponsor, Jerry Glover. Hi, I'm here with my friend Jerry today, who is a very good friend, and she's also our one and only treasured sponsor. Hey, Kate. And I have a cold today, so if I sound like a man... That's why. She's a very pretty man, though. So. I, I am. I have really good hair for a man. So, 
<laughs> so what we'd like to do today is talk about your real estate endeavors. Yeah, so real estate in Amarillo right now is really cracking. We've we've got a great market uh, for both buyers and sellers. We have properties that uh, are affordable and are in good condition, and then we have a, a great market for folks looking to buy those properties. So I feel like it's actually a pretty balanced market right now. So. Um, my big thing right now, I have been helping folks go out and find the perfect house that meets their unique situation. I've had clients that have had some really interesting situations, and we just stay on the trail until we find that perfect spot for them. Well, that's really good. I know that housing in a lot of other places is much more expensive. So if you were selling a 1,400-square-foot house with three bedrooms and two baths, what would that normally go for? I would say right now, if I were going to list that house, I would probably list it somewhere between the 170 to 199 range, probably more toward the 170. 199 tends to be more the four bedroom, two bath. And I encourage my sellers when we are listing a property, I spend time with them looking at things that they may want to put some money into for curb appeal and for saleability of the house. What would you say to our listeners who are in California and other states that aren't Texas and have, unlike Texas, a state income tax as far as moving to Amarillo? So there's two things you're going to encounter that are different. And having moved from California myself to Texas, I can address that pretty well. People talk about the outrageous property taxes that we have in Texas. To that I say this, if you compare what you pay in property taxes to what you are paying in income taxes to the state, I can tell you it is largely less than that. Of course. And we in Amarillo actually have the lowest property taxes in the state. So Amarillo is a great place for that particular issue. The other thing that we have, again, across the state, and Amarillo is a really good example of this, you get so much more house for your buck than you do in California. I, coming from Northern California, Grass Valley specifically, and if there's anybody listening in that area, what's up? But there there is a, a real shortage in that area, frankly, of affordable housing. And what I call affordable housing, I'm talking about $300,000 and less. We have properties there that are three bedroom, one or two bath, as you were mentioning before, that are going for $450,000. That's almost half a million dollars for that house. Here, again, as I said, you're going to get the same house for 170 to, you know, 190 if the market's super hot. Or a much bigger house for your $450,000. That is a, a true story. And for $450,000, that's palatial in Amarillo it just is. about. Those it houses is. are huge. Yes, yes, they are. So how are they going to contact you if they want to do that here in Amarillo or the surrounding area? Right. I am really easy to reach by email, which is Jerry, J-E-R-R-I, at Jerry Glover, G-L-O-V-E-R, dot com. Or they can reach me on my business line at 806-881-6810. And I can also receive text via that number. Okay. Well, thank you, Jerry. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks, Kate. I look forward to it. 
and now we're back. There is a there is a story about a young man named Charles Guernsey. He was 12 years old, and his teacher dismissed the class at 4 p.m. So tar- Charles, 12, took charge of, it, of, of the smaller pupils and delivered them to their homes. It took him about two miles of walking. Uh, his own legs were badly frozen in that in that situation in that storm, but um, doesn't say anything about amputations, but he's 12 years old and he takes these little kids Mm -hmm. and takes them home. Well, I remember there was a story of a young boy who, um, I can't think of his name, but he was in a, in a town, in a small town, and he was the, 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 the classroom monitor. And he was really very responsible. He was eight years old and Walter, Walter Hall or something like that. I think it was Hall. And, um, his brothers dropped him off at school, and when they saw the blizzard had come, they brought buckboards to take the children home, to transport them home, and they all hopped onto the buckboards. Well, he had a little uh, perfume-type bottle that he had water in for cleaning his slate, and he was afraid that it was going to freeze in the blizzard, so he hopped off the back of the buckboard and ran back into school to get it. Well, when he came back out, the bo- the, the transport was gone, and so he was he tried to walk home and it was right in the town. It was right in town and he fell down in the snow and um, his brothers waited and couldn't find him. And so his, uh, one of his older brothers went out to look for him and he went to the school and he saw this, this, this lump, like a hump in the snow and dug it out and it was his brother. And so he grabbed him and and as much as he could, as close as he could, he went to his father's office, I believe, and brought him in and, and got him warmed up. And um, the little bottle that he had had broken because it had been frozen solid and the, the water had leaked out of it. But um, it was a miracle because all the kids had already been home for several hours when they realized that he was missing. And um, and so it was just a miracle that he, he actually survived. And didn't really suffer a great deal of injury from it, which was amazing. Yeah, eight years old. Can you imagine? Well, and mm-hmm. you know about leaving children behind and not knowing it. That's happened to us a couple of times. Right. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. another. Yes, it is. There's, <laughs> an, there's another dog story here. It's from, another disaster subject. <laughs> yes. The dog story is from here on North Dakota. It said, Roland Chambers was caught with his son and their St. Bernard. He buried the boy and the dog in a snowbank and left himself exposed, calling for help. In the morning, he was found dead, but the boy and the dog survived. The boy said his father shouted and the dog barked all night long. They were only half a mile from their house. So being around animals, that that seems to help. There was actually a report in one of the newspapers that a man had murdered his wife and seven children because he didn't want them to freeze to death. Hmm. That's kind of. He survived. Isn't that interesting? Yes, he did. Apparently, (laughs) but (laughs) but that report came in, yeah, to the newspaper from like secondhand from somebody who had heard about it or something. But and I don't know what happened to him, but that's an interesting thought process there. It's, it's, you know, I don't want them to suffer, so I'll kill them now. thought process there. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah, but still, you know, I, I don't want them to suffer. It's not correct thinking, but, but I can follow it. You know, I, I don't want them to die 
this right. way, so I will make sure they die quickly and cleanly. But, or maybe he just right. wanted to get rid of his family and use that as an excuse. You never know. But freaky stuff. Well, and the thing is, there was accounts of like people who turned a wagon over on top of themselves, like brought it on top of themselves to protect themselves from the the storm, but they froze to death underneath the wagon. And, you know, just crazy accounts of people who surviving or not surviving based on the decisions that they made, you know? Yeah, you make the wrong choice and that's it. Because it, it's not like you could have stayed in a tent and live during that because it wasn't just windy. It was so incredibly cold that you had to have a heat source to survive. And even the people that managed to stay in the hay, they ended up losing limbs. So, yeah, it's important. And this is one of the reasons why we do this podcast is when you have to make a life and death decision like that, it's best to have as much information as you possibly can. And if you, re- and if you think ahead about what decisions you would want to make, that saves you time and it can save your life. So if you see a storm coming and you decide whether you need to go home or not, that decision can decide whether you live or die. And that's why planning is so important. You know, what to do if the water starts coming up in your house? What if there's a fire? You need to to plan those things ahead of time. And that that makes your emergency quick decisions, it, it makes for fewer of them. If you already have decisions made, right. then you have a lot more energy and time and focus to make those last-minute decisions that you couldn't anticipate. Right. And then there's a, a section in this book called The Children's Blizzard by um, David Laskin. A lot of an interesting stories and information. It says, there was a cruel aftermath to the blizzard, wrote a survivor. Funerals, surgical operations, cripples, fingers with joints, first joints gone, ears without rims, and some like poor Will Moss who spent the night in the prairie in a shelter of his cutter and supposed that he had escaped without damage, afterward died of diseases caused by the exposure. There were several incidences of people who actually survived the night, but when they got up to go and find help, they went into cardiac arrest because of the, the shunting of the blood away from the extremities, and when they stood and started to uh, circulate the blood again, the cold blood caused them to go into to ventricular tachycardia and then eventually have a cardiac arrest. And so several people got up, made maybe two steps, and then just dropped dead. So, you know, after surviving an entire night in that freezing bitter cold weather and then to stand up thinking everything was okay and to walk two steps and drop dead was just, it's like, huh, made me want to cry. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is. It's, you know, it's a cruel irony. It's like the woman that we talked about a little while ago that said she survived the surgery only to die two weeks later. So, yep. Well, let's talk about the Army Signal Corps because the Army Signal Corps, they used to use the flags and the flashing lights and everything on the boats. And you've seen a hurricane flag, which is orange with a big black square in the middle. Well, a cold weather warning flag is white with a black square in the middle. And what happened was, once they got telegraph, they had all these outlying areas where they set up weather stations where people from the Signal Corps would read 
would read the, the, the temperature, the wind, speed, the, the precipitation, barometric pressure, all that. And then they'd, they'd send it in and they'd make, a, they'd make a local map, weather map. So the smaller offices sent in the information to a larger office in the area, and the area one made an area map. Then they sent the information into Washington where they made a national map. Now, back then, it was uh, there was a lot of things they didn't know about weather, and so some of the things in this I think they missed. But in the Signal Corps, it, the Signal Corps Weather Division, they had all kinds of problems. And when Adolphus Greeley, who was a pompous and jealous kind of jerk guy who uh, eventually those traits contributed to the deaths of 8,000 people in Galveston in the hurricane of 1900. But he took over and he had to clean up what was going on out there. There was a lot of corruption in the Signal Corps at the time. It said one, one of the gentlemen that was running this, the station, it's like a weather station, he was actually writing up his, what they, we didn't call them a forecast then, we called them indications. So he was writing up his indications a week ahead of time and then he'd give it to the telegrapher, and the telegrapher was told to send them out once a day. So he would have the telegrapher send so out a different... prefabbing the information. Yes, he was, he was taking a week's worth of fabricated information, and so much can happen in a week to change the weather that that was totally irresponsible. There was one guy who had hocked off his equipment to pay a gambling debt, and so in order for him to read his instruments, he had to go to the pawn shop. And then there was another one who was taking pictures of nude young women at his office. There was a bunch of people that would make up numbers sometimes if they, did, if they didn't feel like taking the indications or if they had something else to do. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of problems when Greeley took over. And, and he did his best to place people out there who were intelligent and hardworking and wouldn't do these kinds of crazy things. In Fort Assiniboine, yes, Assiniboine. <laughs> in Fort Assiniboine in Montana, they made the first observations of the impre- impending high-pressure cold front. The on-site observer, like I said earlier, said sparks were shooting out of the telegraph machine and wires, and there was a general crackling in the air. Uh, one observer, and it may have been the same man, He ran out to stop children on their way to school. He shouted at them to go home because one of the worst storms ever recorded was heading towards town, and most of them went home. But some of them went on to school, which they later regretted doing. And Greeley blamed this on an observer, Thomas Woodruff, as the man responsible for not sending out the cold wave signal at the time. And he ultimately lost his job being transferred back to his previous military unit. But Thomas Woodruff was actually very hardworking and and did basically what he was supposed to do. The problem was that he didn't have the imagination and he didn't have the advanced instruments that we have now to actually put all those things together and see that there was a deadly cold front coming. So his, he, and also he was... Not only that... He was afraid of Greeley, and, and he was afraid to send out a warning unless he could absolutely positively prove it. So he did hesitate on sending out the cold wave warning. But, and the people that got upset with him and called Greeley were, um, were like the, 
the sugarcane farmers in Louisiana, that's what he got in trouble for, was not predicting it down there where people had had the crops that they had to worry about being destroyed in a storm. And, of course, it hit, it hit Louisiana like it hit South Texas. But, uh, yeah, he did lose his job in the Signal Corps for that. But then again, you know, if, if situation had been different, he probably, he probably would have been able to send it. But it wouldn't have made a difference where he was because it came so quickly. It would have made a difference two days down the road when the cold weather was hitting Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. Well, the thing that, that Woodruff, he really was a very responsible recorder, but Greeley had made such stringent guidelines about when or when, when you could or could not issue a cold wave warning that, that Woodruff, as you said, was afraid of him because he had censured and said, if you, you know, issue one without you know, the, these strict guidelines, then you could lose your job. But the fact was, Woodruff knew that it was a cold wave, and he knew that it needed to be, because he had been stationed out in the western part of uh, Nebraska, I believe it was, and had gone through several of those kind of cold waves when he was stationed in the in the military um, at Fort Abs- Absinthe or something like that. I can't remember what the name of the fort was. It began with an A. Okay. Cinnamon. Oh, cinnamon. And okay. he was in, and so that was, was Mon- there and that was Montana. Knew. Yeah, in Montana. But he knew the effect of these kind of cold waves. And so he really did want to issue a cold wave warning at that point. But because Greeley had been so censorious about it, he was not, he didn't feel he could do it. But there was, there were, was one reporter who had tried to record, but he was violently ill and actually had to climb up onto the roof to do his recording when he was violently ill. And so his recording was a little bit late because he'd been sick. And that caused a delay in the subsequent reports and uh, eventually just caused them not to be reported at all because the telegraph system went down with the storm. Right. And I, and, and I remember reading about that. He was a sergeant and he was very diligent. His, they were always done. They were always done on time and they were always correct. And this one day he got sick enough to where he couldn't do it on time. Yeah. And so, you know, he felt horrible about it because of all the devastation, but you know, you, you're physically ill. You can't do it. You can't do it, you know, but so the whole system kind of was broken, I think, because there was a lot of political push from different factions in the political arena and they would try to, you know, push their agenda. There was actually a parade happening that day and they tried to issue a a warning saying that they shouldn't have the parade and people were caught out in the blizzard because of this, this parade and because they wouldn't give them the right kind of warning because the weather was coming. So it was, you know, like anything, it was a, it was a military agency, so government-related, and a lot of times things have to come from the top down, and the little guy doesn't really have a lot of power in those situations. No, he doesn't. And and Greeley, well, like I said, he was a real power-grabbing jackass. I mean, you know, he, he was, he'd actually written a, a book about weather, and it, and it was very informative, but it was also very pompous if you read it. It's the language is pompous. And later on, he was so jealous that be, right before the hurricane in 1900 in Galveston, he had, was mad because the um, 
because Cuba was giving different um, different information from what his people on the Gulf Coast were giving. So he cut off communication between Cuba and the and the United States. And Cuba was warning about this big hurricane that was coming and passing them, and and the United States didn't know about it because he had been jealous and cut off the communication. And that's one of the reasons so many people were killed in that disaster. So he was a piece of work. Right. So I think even in light of the prediction and the ability to predict the weather in that situation, it was such an incredibly fast-moving storm and so incredibly intense that I don't know that early warning would have helped a lot because early in the morning it was 40 degrees. They had a major temperature drop. If they if they could have done what that one gentleman did and go out and actually tell the school children to go home, that would have saved a lot of lives. But mm-hmm. at that time, you know, you had the telegraph and and you didn't have any way to alert the entire community at the same time. He would have had to have gone door to door, and he, he didn't have time for that. He didn't have time for it before the cold weather got there. You know what I find interesting? What? No, you know what I find interesting is when you described the the cold weather wave flag, it doesn't seem like that would be very effective in a blizzard, a white flag <laughs> with a black square in the middle. Well, the white, maybe the white's supposed to represent snow. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I just how visible would it really have been in a blizzard, you know, a white flag? It would only have been visible for local people anyways. It wouldn't have been for the, the people who were out in the prairie. They wouldn't have had any warning. Yeah, no. those flags were huge, though. They were like nine feet by six feet or something like that. They were... So if you were within eyesight, you would have seen it. But, um, yeah, you're right. It's unfortunate that – actually, we're fortunate now that we have, first of all, a separate weather service because now we have the National Weather mm-hmm. Service that's not connected to right. the military. We also have satellite systems. We have places where we have automatic <clears throat> readings done, like the instruments are on a pole with a solar panel radar. and – yeah, and then we've got the radars that, that can tell us which way the wind is blowing and how much rain is falling and things like that. So our predictions are much better. And even though they're much better, there's still people dying from Hurricane Dorian right now and in America because right. because they were caught in the floods or the, or the mm-hmm. storm surge. So even I think we've got probably the best weather system that we could possibly have. And we still have trouble saving people's lives. I was just looking to see. Did we decide when Krakatoa exploded? Oh, yeah, that's on here. I thought it was on here anyways. So there was a famous eruption in 1883. And there was an eruption. So they had an 1883 eruption. So that would have been five years before the... Uh, right. But it did erupt in 1889. Right. And we had another cold so year then. It was rumbling then. Well, that eruption caused a blockage of solar energy because of all the, the ash in the air. Mm-hmm. And it actually... They actually called that period the Little Ice Age. They had a lot of very big very cold storms and there was one summer that they called it the summer that wasn't because it never warmed up enough to have yeah, a year without a summer that was it never warmed up enough to uh, here it is 
The storm happened at what proved to be the tail of a six-year run of extreme weather called the Little Ice Age. Climate historian and retired state policy analyst Thomas St. Martin wrote that a series of phenomena, including the eruption of, of the Indonesian volcano Krakatoa in August of 1883, formed an atmospheric shield against the sun's warmth that plunged the globe into a deep freeze from, 19, from 1882 to 1888. The powerful Minnesota blizzard of January 12, 1888, formed the Little Ice Age's final exclamation point. So after that, they didn't. Right. Except that in March, they had one of these storms come down farther east and hit New York City and New Jersey. The east coast, yeah. And that was right. in March. Weather is affected by the atmospheric conditions, for sure. You know, when Mount St. Helen, when it erupted, they had problems, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had cooler weather in the area. Yeah. So what's our disaster tip for today? Mm. I would say if you're going to travel... To a cold weather disaster tip? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're going to travel, especially in the winter, check the weather. You have the resource of the Weather Channel and the weather, the National Weather Service to tell you what's going to happen. If you have to travel in cold weather, make sure that you have adequate clothing. Make sure that you have extra food and that you have water and you have some kind of a heating source so that if you get stuck in your car, you'll survive. Um, and also, you don't want to run your vehicle if you're in a snowbank or if you, know, like if you have it go off the road or in a snowbank because the carbon monoxide will come back into the car while you're stuck in the snow. So that's important to know, too. Anything else that we need to record while we're doing this? Mm, I don't think so. How about oh, you could you could always put in a plug for Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Okay, so so you can listen to Disaster Tales on um, on Podbean, on iTunes, on Google Play. It is Stitcher. Stitcher. Anywhere you listen to no. your podcast, no. you should be able to find us. And um, want to make sure and shout out to our Patreon sponsors. Thank you very much. Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Mindy. Thanks, Barb. Appreciate it. We can use every, all the assistance we can get, believe me. <laughs> Especially this month because I've been cursed. <laughs> we are a listener-supported podcast. So if you want to help support this podcast and keep it on the air, you can go to Patreon and sign up as a Disaster Tales patron. There's different levels of patronage and you get different materials available to you. And of course you get our undying gratitude for supporting disaster tales. The music is by Stephanie Cerny. My daughter, by the way. Oh yeah. My niece. (laughs) If you have any ideas on what you'd like to hear, you can get a hold of us at Barb at disastertales.com or Kate at disastertales.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear. Also, if you've had a disaster experience, we want to hear that from you. Because if we get several people who want to talk to us about that, we will have a listener episode and include you in our episode. Alrighty. Well, thanks for listening and listen again next next time, next month on the 15th. We'll download another podcast. <laughs>